0: if you would open your Bible to John chapter 18. John's gospel, chapter number 18 today. The subject is, for this cause came I. For this cause came I. That's a text, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ as he stood before Pilate that day. For this cause, for this reason, for this purpose, I came. And uh, let's read The entire context here will begin in verse number 33, that's John chapter 18 in your Bible. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again, and he called Jesus. And he said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Do you say this thing of yourself, or did others tell it thee of me? In other words, are you asking for yourself or are you listening to the uh, the, the common talk, the gossip in the community? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered thee unto me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight That I should not be delivered to the Jews But now is my kingdom not from here Pilate therefore said unto him Are you a king then? And Jesus answered You say that I am a king And to this end was I born And for this cause came I into the world That I should bear witness to the truth Everyone that is of the truth Heareth my voice and Pilate said unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and said unto them, I find no fault in him. But you have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will you therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? And they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. And Barabbas was a robber. Thank you, and you may be seated. Well, today I begin the 51st year of my ministry here. Last week we observed our 50th anniversary. Boy, it hardly seems possible. I know that's in your mind probably not a significant thing, but to me, I woke this morning and I looked out the window. I have a little one room of our home is really dedicated to a study. I have all, not all my books, but a lot of books and papers and magazines and stuff in there. I would never invite you into that room. You could get snake bit in that room. But uh, that's where I spend most of my life, and I spent all day yesterday there. And I was studying for today. And as I looked out the window of my study, it was a day much like today. I thought the same thing this morning. I saw the beautiful sun hitting on the leaves of the trees, and it was reflecting off of them. They're beginning to get color now. And I'll tell you what, in view of everything that's happening in the world, it just gives you a different perspective. You look out there, and you see God's sunshine, and you see that uh, the sun's going to come up tomorrow again, by the way, and uh, every day is a gift of the Lord, and uh, you can say, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice in it. And so I was sitting there reflecting on what's going on in the country and in my life and thanking God. I don't know why God has allowed me to have such a a long ministry and in the same place. And yet this weekend, I kind of had this sense as I studied for today that maybe the reason the Lord has kept me around is for the times that we're in. Because Jesus said, I came to bear witness to the truth. From the bottom of my heart, I mean this. I want to stand with him in bearing witness to that truth too. Maybe that's why he lets me uh, stay on and continue to minister his word. America has made its choice. It. Has taken the road to the left. The people who booed at the very mention of the name of God four years ago in Charlotte are in power today, or they will be in January. The people who have openly embraced the degrading passages described in Romans chapter 1, they're in control. The whole LGBT agenda, gay marriage, gender fluidity, the Equality Act, and a whole degrading thing described so vividly in God's Word in Romans 1. The group of people who promote abortion, where one of its leaders said, I'll be the most pro-abortion president in all of history. They're in charge. The vice president-elect says that Abortion will always be a top priority with her. The party of the socialists, the Bernie Sanders, the AOCs, the Ilhan, Omar's, people like that are now going to be in charge of our economy. And they openly acknowledge their socialism. They don't hide it. The belief that the state ought to control the means of production Um, is that a biblical issue? It absolutely is. The Bible teaches ownership, private ownership of property and economic liberty. The people who called last summer's riots peaceful protest and are leading in defunding the police, they're going to set the direction, the course for our country now. I'm not saying that uh, one party is better than the other in some ways. Neither party is righteous. Neither party in American politics is, is Christian. You couldn't say that about them. Both of them are part of what we've grown to call the swamp. The people in Washington who are there an elite ruling group who look at us as the common rabble and only seek to uh, feather their own nests. Uh, both parties are involved in that. But if you measure it by the Scripture, and that's why I try to measure everything by the Scripture. If you measure what has happened this past week by the Scripture, those who now claim the victory openly oppose God's standards of Righteousness. They openly oppose biblical morality. And they're going to be the people setting the leadership in America. And America has made its choice. And elections have consequences. We hear that. We're going to find out. It's true. Elections have consequences. I found myself praying the prayer of old Habakkuk, the prophet from the Old Testament. Habakkuk prayed to the Lord in times perhaps similar to the times that we're in right now. How long, O Lord, shall I cry and you not hear? How long, O Lord, will we cry out to you? And it doesn't appear that you're hearing us. And so I thought today I would try to give some biblical perspective to what has happened. Boy, it's, it's a hard day to preach. There's so much we don't know. And we live in such a culture of lies, I'm almost afraid to quote anybody anymore. Are they telling the truth or is this spin too, you know? So I want to step back and, and give you a little piece of history here and describe, first of all, to you the times in which Jesus lived. Because what we're dealing with in our culture is not unique. And I, I don't want us to lose perspective of that. We're not the only people and first people that have gone through this kind of thing. Jesus was born at a time when Rome ruled the entire, or virtually all, the civilized world. And the nation of Israel, the Romans viewed it as a little small sliver of land up on the coast of the Mediterranean. And it was insignificant and inconsequential to them even though it was the most important nation in history from God's perspective. Rome, as you know, at this time was governed by the the Caesars. The Bible says in Luke chapter 1 that Caesar Augustus sent out the decree for the whole world, meaning the whole civilized world, to be taxed. The whole Roman world was to be taxed. The Caesars were absolute monarchs. They answered to no one. They had virtually unlimited power. They had the power of life and death in their hand for any man or woman that lived at that time. There were no human rights. That would have been a joke to a Roman emperor. Unlimited power. And most of them were very tyrannical. A few of them were sort of benevolent, but most of them were very evil people very morally degraded people, you can read about it in your history, and the the nations that they conquered the Romans uh, would conquer these nations and they would send in their diplomats and their emissaries and some brigades of their soldiers to keep law in order. but then they basically let the people have a, a, a great deal of freedom so Jesus, living at the time that he did in Israel, there was, there was a lot of personal liberty that they had as long as the nation would behave itself and not revolt against the Romans. They could maintain, for example, their own religion. And uh, the nations that were subservient to the, to the uh, Romans, they, they basically worshipped in the way they wanted as long as it didn't interfere with Roman government. They could maintain their own cultural practices and so they had their various ceremonies and festivals and so on. Their traditions were still intact. And uh, Rome basically had only two concerns with its captive people. They wanted to collect the taxes. They needed the money to build their roads and their aqueducts and and feed their armies. They were very interested in the taxes. They let local people that they hired be the collectors of those. We call them the publicans in the, in the Jewish culture, the tax collectors. And so Rome basically wanted the taxes and they wanted law and order. And they were big, big proponents of law and order. They tolerated zero tolerance for any kind of revolt or law-breaking or rioting that was going on among the peoples that they had conquered. No tolerance whatever. For lawlessness, and they 'd come in and just crush it, just stamp it out and that 's really what they were worried about when Jesus was standing before Pilate. Is this guy going to create a a revolution of sorts in the country, and they were very concerned with jesus for that for that uh, reason. Slavery was universally practiced in Rome, but it wasn 't the kind of slavery you think about; it was not racially divided slavery, it was not racial slavery. It was slaves were made of the captive people that they took. So the slaves were of every nationality, of every social order. You could have had a person of very high social class that was captured in some nation, and the Romans would take him back and make a slave out of him. And so you have slaves who were brilliant, highly educated people, people that had been in leadership in their own countries before the uh, Roman conquest had occurred. And there's about a two-to-one ratio at some points in the Roman Empire of slavery. In other words, two slaves per free person. And so you really had, uh, slavery was building the empire, slave labor of various kinds. In their religion, the Romans were pagans. They worshiped these uh, mythological gods. Their gods were not, they were imaginary. They were the old Greek pagans that had been passed down to them, the old Greek pagan gods that had been passed down. And they were simply figments of their imagination. They had a god for the harvest. They had a god, Neptune, who ruled over the sea. They had the god, Atlas, who was the head man over the whole thing. They had, they had, uh, Diana, or Aphrodite, the god of love, and so they depended on their gods for fertility, for the seasons of the year, for the rain, for their harvest the, but But the gods were just you know they were the gods had human characteristics. they'd get mad, they'd pout, they would leave for a while, they would go to sleep they and And each god was depicted by a little statue, a little figurine here, and they would bow down and worship them occasionally. And then later on the the Caesars instituted what we call emperor worship. And the people were to worship the Caesar. The Caesar was to be treated as God himself. Now, everybody knew he wasn't God. They knew where he was born, who his parents were. They knew that one day he was going to die. They knew that he didn't have divine powers. But it was a civil thing that was instituted. So the Caesar was worshiped once a year. There was a special festival day. They put a pinch of incense and give a little offering a tribute, a tax, if you will, uh, in a little basin in front of the statue of the Caesar. They had fire burning in it. And you put the incense on there and you were required to say Caesar is Lord. They understood the word Lord means boss, master, president, in charge. And uh, we use the word Lord about Jesus and probably in some ways they understood the meaning of it more than we do. Caesar is the boss. He's in charge. You have to c- obey his commands. You have to follow him. This was the um, The Roman world now they conquered the Jews, and so now the Jews are this oppressed minority. I want to emphasize that don't let that pass you by that's really an important thing in understanding the historical context of the Bible that when Jesus lived, he was a member of a oppressed minority race of people and the poverty that the Jews had, the Jews had been very, very wealthy as a nation, but when the Romans came in and crushed them, then the wealth went with it. And you and I probably don't even understand the poverty in which Jesus Christ grew up. He grew up as a poor man in a little, I mean, a little tiny village that would be a crossroads if we were to compare it to where we are today. And there was no industry there, no wealth there. His dad or his stepfather was a carpenter. And, you know, a carpenter's not going to get rich in a little town of two, three, four, five hundred people. This is where our Lord came, under that Roman oppression, if you will. Underprivileged, the underprivileged class. And ruling over Judea, the area where Jesus lived, was a puppet king. The Romans had appointed him. He was not even a Jew. His name was Herod. There was a whole family of Herods that the Romans appointed one by one, sequentially. And and the Herods were all wicked as as they could possibly be. Not even Jews. They were Edomites. And uh, so cruel that the Herod that you read about at the time of Jesus on the earth Josephus, the Jewish historian, says he murdered his entire family because he was afraid his brother was going to try to take over. He murdered his own mother and family members. This is the cruelty of this wicked man. We read about that in Matthew chapter 2, where you remember when the wise men told Herod that uh, the king of the Jews and that the Messiah's been born in Bethlehem? And so he gave an order to kill all the male boys under two years of age that lived in Bethlehem and in the surrounding area. And Josephus says in his History of the Jews that about 200 male children were killed during that time trying to eliminate Jesus Christ. The Jewish religion that was being practiced in the time of Jesus maintained all of its outward form. There was the temple. It was still there. But the, it had lost its holy place for all intents and purposes. And the synagogues were there, a little synagogue in every town, one in Nazareth where Jesus had gone as a boy. The priests were still there serving in their positions as empty as it was. There were two major religious groups in Israel at the time of Christ. The Sadducees. They were the upper class, the wealthy people for the most part. They were also the skeptics. The, the, the Sadducees didn't believe in the supernatural. The Bible says they didn't believe in the angels. They didn't believe in the existence of supernatural beings, angels or demons. They didn't believe in a resurrection. It says that about Jesus. They, when he talked about a resurrection, they, they mocked him. And they basically had a religion of morality, just be a good neighbor, live by the Ten Commandments, and so on. And then there were the Pharisees. This was the common man's religion. They were the fundamental people of that day. They at least believed all of the Bible. They believed in the supernatural. But they had added 639 rules to the law of Moses, which made it impossible for people to even... Be able to live there. 30-some regulations they added to the Sabbath. And after a while, the people had just given up. I, I can't keep all these laws. I don't even know what all these rules are. And so the people were discouraged, and the people had just absolutely given up, as it were. And then there was one more really important group that I don't want you to miss, and they're called the zealots, the zealots. You see, one of the disciples was called Simon Zelotes after the word zealot. And the zealots, there were a lot of them. They were all over Israel at this time. They were revolutionaries. Had they lived in our times, we would have called them terrorists. They were always sabotaging things. They were assassinating Roman leaders if they had the opportunity. They were violent. And their whole goal was to create an insurrection in the country that would lead to a great uprising and they would drive the Romans out of the country and the Jews would be independent. There would be Jewish independence again, the Zealots. And that's why there was this fear of Jesus on the part of Pilate. When they told him, this fellow Jesus is claiming to be the king of the Jews. And he said, whoa, the Jews have a guy who claims to be a king, and he's thinking of all these zealots. This Jesus is planning an uprising. This Jesus is, is he must be a terrorist. He must be one of the zealots. He must be a revolutionary. And that's why he was interested. He didn't care what Jesus taught. He didn't care if Jesus worshiped God or believed the law, none of that. What he was concerned about is he didn't want to have any violence in his in his area where he was the governor. In fact, one of the names mentioned here in our text, in the verse 40, Barabbas. If you go to Mark chapter 15 and verse 7 and compare the accounts, Barabbas is called an insurrectionist. Barabbas was in jail because he was trying to leave one of these revolutionary insurrectionist groups against the Romans and to work for Jewish independence. And in fact, this was such a serious problem that you often have, uh, we've often here, and I've preached on Titus coming down and destroying the city of Jerusalem and killing a million Jews and sacking the temple and all that. Do you know why he came? He was coming to crush the Zealots. They were coming to stamp out this revolution. they had had it. The Jews were, be, were viewed as being pesky people and we're tired of always all this foment going on underneath the culture. And we're going to deal with it once and for all. And so they came down and cruelly tried to destroy everybody that they could. They, History says it was about a million people that they killed. Now, I've taken a lot of time, not to give you a history lesson, but first of all, every time I study for a message, I try to study the historical background and context of the passage, because I really don't think you can even understand your Bible sometimes if you don't know what is going on behind the scenes here contextually. And so this is the world into which our Lord came. And why is it relevant today? Well, because you and I this week have seen a great change in our government, in the direction potentially of this nation. And what I want to remind you of is that we're not the first people who have lived through transitions and even revolutions and major conflicts and troubles. And how did Jesus respond to that evil government under which he then lived? How did Jesus respond to a very secular, godless government in which he was called to live and to minister. Well, the first thing I would say to you is that he never forgot why he was here. He never forgot his purpose. And so I've used that as the title of my message. For this cause came I. This is the reason I stand here before you today, Governor Pilate. I came into the world for a Specific cause, and it's not to overthrow the Roman government and establish a kingdom here yet. I came here to bear witness to the truth. If you really get hold of that phrase, I could close my Bible and quit right now. Because if I am a follower of Him, Nothing in the kingdom of God has changed this week. We are here to bear witness to the truth of God that is an eternal truth that never changes. And I want you to understand, Jesus Christ never forgot his purpose. He never became distracted. He never was confused. He never lost focus to why he was here. He was here to proclaim, to bear witness to the truth of God. Pilate asked him twice. Verse 33, are you a king? Again, in verse number 37, are you a king? And Jesus answered him the second time, yes, I am. But Governor Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. My kingdom is in an entirely different dimension. My kingdom is not political. My kingdom is spiritual. He emphasized that throughout his whole ministry. Matthew 6 and 33 that everybody in the building can quote. Seek ye first, what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness, a kingdom built on righteousness, a kingdom built on justice, a kingdom built on the character of God himself. Seek first that kingdom and God's righteousness and holiness. And when you've done that, all the other things will take care of themselves, is what Jesus was saying. Verse 37, to this end was I born... And for this cause, I came, and I came to bear witness of the truth. Man, how there needs to be a witness to the truth. Aren't we tired of hearing lies? I mean, you turn on the news, and I, I don't even hardly turn it on anymore. It is just a cascade of lies. I mean, we've been lied about so much so often that we don't it's, it's difficult to have any confidence, any trust in, in anyone. The president's going li- to lose by 17 points. It was a lie. A thousand other lies. I just illustrate it with one. And so what do we believe? We live in a culture where In virtually every secular college in America, our young people, and this is the problem maybe, the root of the problem, our young people are being taught that there's no such thing as absolute moral truth. There is no truth. Don't spend your life looking for it. Enjoy your life. Live for pleasure. Live for power. Live for material gain. But don't worry about the truth. There's no such thing as the truth relativism, secularism, empiricism, pragmatism, all of them, truth is irrelevant. Jesus never mounted a crusade against Roman oppression. Jesus never... This is interesting. In a whole culture full of victimhood today, Jesus Christ... A true victim never once claimed to be a victim. He never played the victim card. He wasn't, a, he wasn't, he, he didn't buy into that line of thinking. He never talked about, woe is me. He didn't have self pity. He never led a crusade against slavery in a culture that had two slaves for every free man. He never led a social justice crusade. (laughs) Jesus wasn't woke. Jesus never led a campaign for human rights, though human rights were hardly existent under the Romans. Now, here's what he did do he taught the truth, he bore witness to the truth. What's the truth? He said, God is no respecter of persons. And in doing that, he elevated everything. That's true equality. In the eyes of God, we're all the same. Men, women, the slaves of that day, the leaders of the culture of that day, God is no respecter of persons. Equality. He, he ele- the teachings of Jesus elevated the women. The teachings of Jesus elevated the poor. The teachings of Jesus elevated the outcast of society. The people that were living out there on the margins, no longer were they to be misplaced. Jesus elevated them all. People who took his teachings seriously and people who in later years, took those teachings and they applied them to their cultural problems. Like William Wilberforce, he led the crusade against slavery and overcame it in England and later in America. It was based on the teachings of Jesus Christ. The Christians led the way in the fight against slavery. The merchants didn't do that. They were merchandising off of them. And you come down through history... Jesus Christ's truth that he bore witness to, get the point, the truth that Jesus bore witness to was was responsible for more social progress than the teachings of any other person who ever lived in human history. I came to give men the truth. And when men understood that truth, it opened their eyes to the problems of the societies. I've traveled a, a good bit in places around the world. And you know what I've noticed in underdeveloped countries in Africa and in Asia and Latin America and so on, I pass by a hospital. And even in a foreign country, it says the Baptist Hospital, the Catholic Hospital, the Seventh-day Adventist Hospital. And you see... While the pagans had no real feeling and love for one another, when Christianity came, it began to minister and meet the health needs of people. And and I've traveled and I've seen schools and universities. The missionary would tell me, do you know who started that university today? It's a great university in Nigeria or somewhere in the world. And the missionary says, that university started in a little church that a missionary came here a 100 years ago and founded and started a little Bible institute and they were teaching the Bible and it began to expand and now it's the state university of the whole nation. It was the Christians because of the teaching, the truth that Jesus Christ brought into the darkness of the pagan world around him. And he's been building that kingdom for 2,000 years that kingdom is not a political kingdom. It's not an economic kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of God is holiness and righteousness and peace and joy in the hearts of people that have trusted in him, that have come to the cross and have been washed in the blood, that have heard the gospel, that believe the gospel and, and, and presented their lives to Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Lord, the truly saved people of the earth. And every time I lead a person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have added to that kingdom. And then, of course, we believe that someday after his rapture and the tribulation period, he's going to come back and he's going to set up a literal millennial kingdom in the city of Jerusalem. And he's going to rule and reign over the whole world in a way that Rome could only dream about. The king, the Lord Jesus that kingdom, 2,000 years. Rome didn't last 2,000 years. Egypt didn't last 2,000 years. America won't last 2,000 years. The British Empire didn't last 2,000 years. But the kingdom of God will endure forever and ever and ever. Empires come and empires go. But the soul of man is eternal and immortal C.S. Lewis wrote, human beings live forever and the state is temporal. Human beings live forever. The state is temporal. We can't believe it, but the United States is passing away. But every person seated in this building will live endless, dateless, timeless, eternal, forever and ever and ever and ever through eternity. This was the priority of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm a citizen of that kingdom, not through anything I've done, not because I'm a preacher. I'm a citizen of that kingdom because of a cross and the blood of Jesus Christ that cleansed me from my sins and instilled His Holy Spirit into my heart. By grace, I'm in that kingdom, and most of you are. And you see, the disciples originally had these dreams of being a part of this messianic kingdom. Many scholars believe that's the reason Judas became a traitor, is he saw what was happening. Hey, this guy's kingdom ain't going to make it, and he bailed out and betrayed the Lord for what he could get out of it. His hopes would be he would be the secretary of the treasury in the millennial kingdom. And so he bailed on Jesus when he saw that there was not going to be earthly reward for him. And Paul, the apostle, writes about our citizenship and the kingdom. He says in Philippians 3 and 20, our conversation, and that's the word from which we get our word, politics, if you'll look it up in your Bible. Our politics is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven where we wait for the coming Of what? Our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that citizenship should be absolutely the number one thing in the life of every one of us. Don't be disappointed. I know a lot of people are today, but ladies and gentlemen, we are pilgrims, we're strangers, we're temporary residents. I'm just a pilgrim passing through. Man, Here's the way it really is. All of us are on a green card. We're temporary. Let's get our perspective right today. The church's mission, my mission, your mission, is to bear witness to that truth. Turn with me, if you will. The book of Ephesians in your Bible, chapter number 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And there we're finding instructions for spiritual conflict. Not earthly conflict, not a war with guns and rifles and bombs and stuff like that, but a spiritual conflict that every single one of us are involved in. And I go down to chapter 6, the book of Ephesians, and Paul says in verse number 10, Finally, brethren, let me conclude, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's a good verse for you to memorize today. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to S-T-A-N-D stand. What's the Lord want us to do? To stand. To take a position on his truth and to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, you continue reading here he said, I want you to stand. And then I go to verse 13, taking to you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand. There's my word stand the second time. And then at the end of the verse, and having done all, stand. He says it for a third time. And then he begins verse 14, stand therefore, and the first part of the armor is truth, stand on the truth that Jesus Christ came to bear witness of in his ministry on the earth. Stand. for the truth of God is under attack like never before. We, don't, we can't even define truth anymore. I have longed for, for the last 15, 20 years as a preacher, I've thought Maybe this thing is going to turn around at some point. Maybe God will let me live long enough to enjoy it because every day is a war. Every day is a battle. And you boil it down, it's a battle for the truth. God, will you let me live long enough? You see, my dad used to say the things of earth can't satisfy a heart that was made for eternity the things of this world cannot give that deep inner satisfaction, can't satisfy the heart that God made and put a God-shaped vacuum in that heart. And I keep thinking, maybe this silliness, this frothiness about Christianity is going to pass in my life. And maybe that the hunger there will be a hunger for the truth of God's Word in the hearts of the people. Maybe there will be a turning. You see, without truth, life is empty. And life is meaningless. Life is hopeless if you don't have truth. I kind of believe I'm beginning to see God squeezing some of the silliness out of the evangelical movement that's been here for the last 25, 30 years. And maybe people are going to see the only kind of Christianity that's going to endure in a hostile culture is serious Christianity. Serious Christianity. And may God put that hunger in our hearts. In 1885, there were three Christian boys in Uganda and Africa who bore witness to the truth by shedding their blood for Christ. The king of Buganda, which was the major tribe in Uganda, reacted against the Christians and began to persecute them. Now, this is 1885, this is over 100 years ago. And the reason he reacted against Christianity and started to persecute was that people were leaving their pagan native religion and they were turning to Christ in drugs by the thousands. And he felt like this was a threat to him as the king of a, of a pagan nation, that people were all changing their, quote, religion. And then the thing that really set it off, he had three pages, three young men, that, sharp young men, that had come to work at the palace to work for him to be his servants. One of them was 15. One of them was 11 or the youngest was 11. The oldest was 15. The youngest was 11, three young men. What really set it off was these three pages refused his homosexual advances. And they were Christians. They had become converts of Christ. The youngest was named Yusufu, And the people gathered around that day Unbelievably, the execution site of a child and two teenagers. The families came. They were weeping. They were pleading even for these boys to renounce their faith, but they wouldn't. And they got them ready to put them in the fire. And the 11-year-old boy, Yusufu, said, Send a message to His Majesty. Tell him he can put our bodies in the fires, but we won't be there very long. And tell him that we'll soon be with Jesus. But if he doesn't repent, he will spend all of eternity in the fires. And they sang a song, which I understand is still sung in Uganda today. It's called the Martyr's Song. Oh, that I had wings like angels. I would fly away and be with Jesus. What a thought. The account says that little Yusufu said, Please don't cut off my arms. I will not struggle in the fire when it takes me to Jesus. And if you go today to Kampala, the capital city of Uganda, There's a memorial. You can look it up on the internet. The pictures are all there. It's a memorial of 45 martyrs because there were many more who died for Christ in the days and weeks ahead. And the big sign on the front of the memorial says, The blood of the Uganda martyrs is the seed of our faith. The blood of the Uganda martyrs is the seed of our faith. That kind of love, that kind of commitment to truth, that kind of loyalty to Jesus Christ is what I pray American Christians are going to be developing and the people of the Florence Baptist Temple as well. So I looked out the window and the sun was shining on the leaves at at my study and I thought, I'm not without hope today. The sun came up. And God gave me another wonderful day of life. And the sun will come up tomorrow. And God still reigns in the kingdoms of this world. That's going to be my attitude. Like the old song says, when morning gills the eastern skies, my awakening heart cries, May Jesus Christ be praised. And if you'll praise the Lord Jesus Christ, that'll take away an awful lot of the gloom that is in people's hearts in America today. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn called A Charge to Keep Have I. And it goes, to serve the present age, my calling to fulfill, oh, may it all my powers engage to do my master's will. Amen. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, in prayer, please.